You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. I want to start by thinking about um, something I watched on Netflix a little while ago. There's a Netflix adaptation of a book called Behind Her Eyes. I don't know how many of you might have seen it. Um, and I, it was the thing that everyone at work was talking about. And there's a, a twist in it that no one would tell you what it was. Um, so not wanting to miss out, I watched it as well. These are the main characters in it here. Um, and after the first two or three episodes, I was completely hooked. And I kept saying to people, you should watch this, it's really good. Which, if I'm honest, after about episode four, I sort of regretted because it went really weird. Like, I'm not great with weird, so I did have to backtrack on that. Um, But it was really good. And the main thing that got me gripped was the fact that you really couldn't tell who was good and who was bad. So the first episode, the couple on your left are married. And the first episode, I'm watching it, and I was thinking, oh, he's a bad one. And she's the victim in this relationship. But then something little would happen, and I was like, oh, oh, no, hang on. She's the wrong one, and he's the victim in this. And for about the first three episodes, I couldn't work out who was good and who was bad. And I find that frustrating because I like to know who I'm siding with. I like a nice, clear definition, who I can cheer with and who I can sneer at. I like it to be clear, like the three little pigs, good. Wolf, bad. Snow White, good. Creepy lady at door with the poisoned apple, very bad. It's clear. Indiana Jones, good. Freddy Krueger, bad. But when we're reading the stories through the Bible, it just doesn't work that way. It's, it's a bit more layered than that. Today we're looking at the next seven chapters of Genesis. So we've started a new series for anyone who's uh, new here today, working through Genesis. And today uh, we're starting at 16, where Rebecca left off last week. And then next week, Steve's going to pick up at 23. And as I was reading through the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, it was really hard to classify the lists of good and bad. Um, You'll probably know that through the story, Abraham becomes Abraham, Sarah becomes Sarah. I'm just going to call them Abraham and Sarah throughout, or I'm going to keep correcting myself. Uh, Not theologically accurate. However, it's what we're going to roll with while we do it. So I want to know who to be good at. I want to know who's good. I want to know who's bad, who to cheer on. But these are not pantomimes. The stories are not fairy stories. They're not pantomimes with clear lines. So we just have to work through it. The people in there are layered and complicated, a little bit like us in here. And that's what we just have to go with. So we have to look back before we start to this bit. We're looking back um, to the previous chapters where we first met Abraham and Sarah. And Rebecca gave us some background on this last week. She talked about it being a fiercely patriarchal society. And for this part, we need to bear that in mind. Uh, She talked about how the commentaries we have on these stories are mostly written down and interpreted by men. And how the women's stories are there, but you do have to look a little bit harder to find them. Today's chunk of the story, to make sense, we have to look back to um, a bit from chapter 12. There's this really uh, well-known bit, here we go, that um, Ellie read for us, where God makes this promise, makes this covenant with Abraham. He says, you'll have a son who is your own flesh and blood, will be your heir. 
Um, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if you can count them. Then he said, so your offspring shall be. Now, rabbis have talked a lot about why, this, why Abraham was chosen for this covenant. Um, there's nothing particularly recorded about his personal qualities that would make him good for this, no major achievements on his CV. Some think it's perhaps it was his willingness to leave those things that he knew and venture out into the unknown, which is admirable, but uh, we can't place him firmly on the good list with Indiana Jones because, as Rebecca reminded us last week, he did give his wife away to somebody else to save his own skin, and he does do it again later on in the story. But as we said, this is not a Marvel comic with heroes and villains. The stories aren't meant to create a sense of us and them. We're probably not meant to side with anyone because surely these stories ultimately are meant to bring us together and not enforce enemy lines. But what we do know about Abraham is that he was a wealthy herdsman and that he was married to Sarah. Now, we've already said that this was a fiercely patriarchal society and Sarah had to live within the limitations of that. But because she was married to Abraham, that did give her some priority and some privilege and power in her situation. I'm going to quote Rachel Held Evans again, who's already been mentioned this morning. She talks about this, uh, she retells this story, and she describes Sarah's position. And she imagines how old and young, men and women, slave and free, would have ventured to her tent for advice on breeding goats, arranging marriages, spicing food, and offering prayers. But and then she adds, and yet in our world, they called this woman barren. Because the first time we meet Sarah in Genesis, she's introduced with the words, now Sarah is childless because she was not able to conceive. And this is difficult. This is really difficult for Sarah. And I imagine her every month just wishing and hoping that this would be the month. This would be the month that that covenant would come true and that she would become pregnant in those days, women would go off to the red tent each month. And I imagine her going each month. She would have been seeing familiar faces, because that's just how it works each month, until uh, one by one, friends stopped turning up as they got pregnant, and young faces turning up that she hadn't seen before. And then finally, Sarah reaching an age that she stopped needing to go to the tent. It seemed like all hope had gone and that God wasn't going to bring this child through Sarah. But having an heir was such an essential part of life then. And the covenant promise that God had given to Abraham, which is still up here, hinged pretty much on her fertility, on her being able to have this child. But to make matters worse, it comes with some small print because the story records how the covenant was with Abraham, but not with Sarah. So she may have had some power and some privilege in her tribe, but she didn't have security. Abraham needed an heir. And if Sarah couldn't give him this son, then there would be nothing to stop him selling her off to someone else. So others in her tribe may well have looked up to her, but I imagine Sarah didn't feel as important on the inside as others would have seen her from the outside. She was dispensable, and she knew it. So I feel for her. 
I can see how awful and unsafe and how dangerous this position was for her, and I want to encourage her, and I want to cheer her on, but then she comes up with the plan B. And she says to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children, so go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build my family through her. So the plan was then that she would give her servant, Hagar, to Abraham to get pregnant, and boom, covenant fulfilled, tick. So Hagar would carry the child, she would give birth to the child, she would then hand the child over to Sarah, all very handmaid's tale, but under Mesopotamian law this was perfectly acceptable, because having an heir for the family line was more important than anything else. Whatever threat bringing another woman into the family might have was not as risky as not having somebody to carry on the family line. So Sarah was in a really difficult situation, but her way to resolve it does not feel okay at all. So like Abraham, we can't label Sarah good or bad because like a Marvel hero or villain, and I don't think we're meant to. And I'm not defending her choices, but we're all complex people doing the best we can with the cards we've been dealt in the time that we're living in. So this is where we meet Hagar, our third key character in this section. As I said, she gets given to Abraham to get pregnant. And this all happens in the story without anyone speaking directly to her. Nobody uses her name. Nobody addresses her. Womanist theologian Will Gaffney describes her as a womb slave. And this sounds completely awful for Hagar. However, there is a sliver of a silver lining for her because if she does get pregnant, this could bring her a level of protection that she didn't have before. If she can get pregnant with the child of a tribal leader, then she would have to stay as Sarah's maid. She can't be passed on to anyone else. So Hagar's role in the story is fairly brief. She's more of a walk-on part, but the impact she has is enormous. And we'll see that as we go through the story. So Sarah's plan worked. Hagar did get pregnant. The baby began to grow inside her. And once she started feeling those uh, feet kicking her in the ribs, something changed in the dynamic Chapter 16 records that when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Now, the recording we have of the story, obviously, doesn't ask Hagar her version of events or her opinion on this. Nobody asked her anything at all. But whatever went down, life became unbearable for Hagar. And it got to the point that once pregnant, she felt she had no other choice but to escape and disappear into the wilderness with her unborn child a bit like the Hebrews would do later on. She took herself out of the situation. She saved herself. And in the words of theologian Phyllis Tribble, by running away, she was claiming her own exodus. The Bible has lots of escape stories in it, but Hagar is the first female in the Bible to liberate herself from the oppression that she experienced. She claimed her own exodus. Hagar's is the story of one very determined woman. 
Her story is for anyone who feels ignored. Her story is for anyone who feels used, pushed aside or invisible. She would have known the punishments for rebellion and for running away. But she traveled alone in the brutal wilderness, pregnant with no food or water. She's in a desperate situation, but somehow she makes it to the Egyptian border. Egypt is where she was from originally before she was given to Abraham, who then gave her to Sarah. So she gets back to the border. She's nearly back where she began. And it was here that the the story records how the angel of the Lord found her. And this is the first time in the story where someone speaks to Hagar and calls her by her name. Finally, someone acknowledges her in a way that nobody else in her story had done. And on top of that, this divine stranger invites her to speak for herself and about herself. Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? God invites her to speak for herself and gently asks her, what's been going on with you? This isn't the distant creator God we've seen earlier in Genesis. It's not the warrior God we've seen earlier in Genesis. This is a loving and gentle God who found her when she wasn't even looking and spoke with her, to her with tenderness and love. And that's the first time we've seen this in the Bible so far. Hagar explains a bit about what's going on. Uh, and according to the story we have, God tells her to return to her mistress. I think it's fair to say that this was a disappointing response from God. But I spoke about this once before, just before lockdown in part of the Hooray for the Matriarchy series. I talked a bit then about how much I wrestled with this and how, as somebody standing here now in London in this time, I wanted her to be free. I wanted her to have the happy ending. This time, I just want to focus a bit more on the impact she has in spite of everything that's going on around her. So God tells her to go back to her mistress, but then... He says this. He says to her, God says to Hagar, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. So we've heard this before, right? This is the same promise that God gave to Abraham. He now gives to Hagar. This non-Hebrew woman, this outsider from Egypt, the same promise He gave to Abraham. So through this promise, God puts the matriarch on a par with the patriarch. And this messenger tells Hagar to name her son Ishmael because God hears. So she was pretty much invisible to the other people in the story who barely spoke to her. But God saw her and God gave her a promise He gave her value when no one else did. And then Hagar does something else that's incredible. Something that nobody else in the Bible does. She gives God a name. El Roy, the God who sees me. The story then goes on to say how Hagar gave Abraham a son. Tricky bit here. And Abraham named him Ishmael. Which we know is not quite the case because it was God that told Hagar that. 
but apparently it's his story, so he gets to tell it and crack on with it however he would like to. Anyway, at this point, it all goes off on a bit of a tangent, and Nath said that even if you're just focusing on a bit in the chapters that have been given, can you tell the rest of the story as well? So I'm going to summarise the next bit, because it's a bit bonkers, and we're not going to think too much about it. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to read it from here because there's a lot in a short space of time. So at this point in the story, it goes off on a tangent. God and Abraham have a long chat about circumcision for an entire chapter. Then Abraham sees three men outside his tent. He believes they're from God, so he looks after them. They say that Sarah will have a baby, even though she's super old at this point. Sarah laughs at the idea of it. Then the three men go off to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they have heard things are not going very well at all. When they got there, they found out that this is true. So God destroyed the entire city. Another awkward moment in reading the Bible. We're not going to go into that now. Um, when this... Uh, no, skip that bit. Um, <laughs> anyway, then it gets weirder. Um, so Lot, at this point, Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, accidentally impregnates his two daughters while he is asleep. Abraham then lies to a king to save his own skin again and says that Sarah is his sister, not his wife, which means for the second time, Abraham gives Sarah to another man, but then the other man has to give her back, and he gives Abraham some extra sheep just to make sure there's no hard feelings and to smooth things over. So that's the digression in the middle, and now I'm going to get back to the main story here. Back to Sarah, who does get pregnant after all this, and she gives birth to Isaac. So then things go wrong in the household again. We've got Ishmael from Hagar and Isaac from Sarah. And Sarah looks at them both and says, they, ca they cannot stay. I don't want Ishmael and Hagar in the house anymore. And demanded that Abraham get rid of them. Abraham, it says, didn't want to do this because Ishmael was his son. But he did what Sarah wanted and he sent them away into the wilderness where it was hot and brutal. The water ran out, and Hagar could see that her boy was not going to survive this. She left him in a small, shady spot. She stayed nearby, and she cried and cried. And Hagar's tears at this point are the first time in the Bible so far that we've seen someone express emotion so openly. And once again, God responded to her kindly, gently, tenderly. What's wrong Hagar, don't be afraid. I have heard Ishmael's cries. I know what's going on. And he tells her to go and get her boy and hold him tight because he is going to make a great nation out of Ishmael, just as he would out of Isaac. The matriarch, again, on a par with the patriarch. Hagar was excluded by people but found by God. He hears her, sees her, and is gentle with her. So the big story in Genesis is about Israel. It's about Abraham's heirs through Isaac and God's blessing of the Jewish people. But here in the middle of it, Hagar and her story. 
As I said, she might have a bit of a walk-on part, but the impact she has is enormous. Hagar manages to push the story in an entirely different direction, whether she meant to or not. Her story completely undermines the official patriarchal narrative of the time. She gets left out of a lot of her own story. And in a moment, I'm going to hand over to Peter, who is going to come and explain a few ways that women still get left out of the main story today. But before that, I just want us to quickly summarize a few of those key moments when Hagar pushes the story in a different direction from that male-dominated narrative of the time. So remember, she receives the same promise from God as Abraham, that she would have descendants so many that they couldn't be counted. In the desert, God finds her twice. Hagar is distraught and God comforts her. And this is the first time that we've seen God responding to a person in this way, no longer as a distant creator or as a warrior God. He saw her and he cared. She gives God a name. No one else in the Bible does this. She gives God a name, Elroy, the God who sees. And finally, here's the big one. There's a short line at the end, which last time I spoke about her, I don't think I really even noticed. But it tells us that Hagar found a wife for her son. This is the only time in the Bible where the woman finds the wife for the son. This is a patriarchal society. The men find the wives for their sons. You don't let a woman mess with the family lines. But Hagar messed with the lines. She found the wife for her son. Abraham is a central character in the Isaac story. Hagar is the central character in the Ishmael story. So here in the beginnings of scripture, a matriarch is on a par with the patriarch. God blesses an Egyptian woman in the midst of an iron-clad Hebrew patriarchy. And it makes me wonder... What could have happened if the narrative had gone on to follow the mother and not just follow the father? Peter's going to come and uh, he will explain a little bit about why I've asked him to do this bit. Hello. I am... I want to talk about um, this podcast I, project I started in lockdown called The Be Better Library. And, um, this is the first book that we did. It's, uh, it's a book by a woman called uh, Caroline Criado Perez, um, MBE. She's um, an award-winning um, author, um, feminist campaigner, uh, broadcaster and writer. She's, um, she's amazing. And she wrote this incredible book, which is, I mean, that, that much of it is small print, facts just to back up all the things she talks about. She talks about a number of amazing things that I just can't understand how I've got to my age and not, and not know this. Um, and I do this project with a, with a friend of mine who's um, he's a woman, um, and she feels the same. There's just, this is full of stuff that we just had no idea about. So this is, this is reference man. So the world is created for this fella. He is a man, cisgendered, almost definitely heterosexual. 
He's uh, 25 to 30, he's Caucasian, and he's 70 kilograms. So the world is built for this fella. Although, absolutely, it's, of course, it absolutely isn't. But, but the right down to, I just find this insane. So the size of a piano, the size of piano keys are not designed for a woman's hand. So it means that if you're, if you're a woman and you're a pianist, you can't reach your full potential unless you've got big hands. Um, that pavements are, um, are designed for, the ab for, for, for this fella's um, stride. So it means that if you're wearing high heels, they're likely to get stuck in the cracks between because no one's thought about them. Well, obviously, it hasn't been designed by a man. Um, so I've got a, few that, I've got a few other little facts that we've, we've pulled out, but there's one, I've, there's, there's one I've missed that I just find dreadful, that, that there are nine, women and girls spend 97 billion hours a year trying to find a safe place to use a toilet. That if you're a, a woman and you're holding a smartphone, unless you've got big hands, you can't use a smartphone with one hand. It's not designed for holding with one hand. Um, obviously designed by a man. Well, I know it was designed by a man. Um, the one in five women in the UK have been sexually assaulted on buses and tubes and, and, and trains but only 90% report it. This is one of the worst facts. But crash test dummies are only male. There are a few women, but they're only male. But legally, you only have to test a car on a, on a male dummy. Car crashes are the number one cause of fetal death related to maternal trauma. The female is just a scaled-down male about the size of a 12-year-old child. The females, this is so shocking, the females are only tested in the passenger seat and not in the driving position. And as we know, the women can drive. We haven't yet developed a seatbelt that works with pregnant women or with breasts. Women are 71% more likely to be moderately um, injured in a car accident, 47% more likely to be seriously injured, or 70%, 17% more likely to die than a man driving a car. Why don't we know this? Stab vests are not designed to work with breasts. They've been designed for reference, man. So for women to wear PPE, 70% of women who wear PPE find it's too small. So that includes face masks, gowns, um, stab vests, and, uh, and um, bullet vests. But women's um, bodies are routinely excluded, this is so shocking, from, from, medical re from medical research, creating a huge data gap in uh, medicine between men and women's bodies. And that includes uh, animal cells, female animal cells, and, and, and female cells. I don't understand why this isn't front page news, it's just so shocking. And then at the end of the podcast, Evie and I talk, this is Evie and me, I look great. Um, <laughs> We, we decide what makes us better, and, and I, Evie's much more eloquent than I am, but I thought that, that the knowledge is power, and I want to know about this stuff so that I can warn all the women in my life about not driving a car. <laughs> um, I'll leave this book here if you want to uh, have a look through and pass you back to Leanne. Thank you. So Peter dropped himself right in that because I listened, he sent me the link for the podcast and I listened to the podcast and in it he says a lot about how everyone needs to know this. He's absolutely right. So I was like, well, I've got the perfect platform. You can tell a few people about it now. Um, so thank you for that. 
Perhaps we can put the link to it somewhere so that people can listen to the podcast and, um, and hear some more of it. So in the story then, back to our story, Hagar gets left out of her own story. And as Peter is explaining that that still happens to women and other groups now, people still get left out of the main story. And Hagar's story is for anyone that wants to mess with the dominant narrative, but perhaps feels too small, insignificant, invisible, or powerless to do it. She was ignored and she was pushed away, but she still messed with the lines and changed the story, and I love her for that. And isn't that exactly what we're called to do still? To change the stories that we see around us. This is what our theology tells us to do. To change the stories in any ways that we can see opportunities to do it. Changing the endings for people who we know are struggling Changing the endings for people we don't know, but we can still see uh, the support that they need, and we can use initiatives to do that that other people have set up for us, like small projects, like the food banks, the language classes, and many more things, both here and in other communities where you might live. We're called to change the stories for those in our communities who are lonely and sidelined and ignored by others. For people, as Diego reminded us, who are told that it is not okay to be who they are and that they would need to change. We need to change the stories and mess with the lines around violence against women who were just walking home and men who were just doing their jobs to serve their communities. And all too often, these stories seem too big to mess with and we can be left feeling stuck. But this is why church is good isn't it? Lots of people pushing against the things that aren't right adds up to a lot of pressure, which eventually forces change. And that's exactly what we saw in the John Lewis video. But even knowing that, knowing that we're part of something bigger, can still be hard to try and fight against such big things. We can't help but wonder, how can I possibly have an impact? Someone in our small group shared this prayer um, a couple of weeks ago, and I found it hugely encouraging in this sense of what can I do? I'll read it here. It says, it helps now and then to step back and take the long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it's even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we're about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and do it well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, 
But that's the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. So we may not get to see the end of the story, but we can still play our part by nudging, pushing, shoving the world around us into a new and better direction. But before I finish, I know that there will be people also sitting in this room who feel like they are barely holding on to their own story right now. And the thought of trying to go and change the world around them is just a bit too much. And I want just to highlight here that that is okay. That our God is a God who sees. Hagar stopped in the wilderness and she poured out her fears, her hurts, her pains, and God was tender and gentle and patient in response to her. This is our God, seeing, knowing, caring, and loving. So if being still is what you need, if being held and looked after is what you need, then I believe that Hagar also shows us that this is okay too. To sit down, to take a rest, to feel the feelings, to reach out to others if it helps and let other people mess with the lines and save the world for a bit. And then you can join them when you feel ready. There is definitely a space in God's great narrative for all of us, wherever we're at right now. So this is the second time I've spoken about Sarah and Hagar. And the more time I spend with them, the more I love their story. So I would strongly recommend that you go back and read it through. And then Steve will be back next week to pick up from where we left off and take us through the next bit. Thank you.